thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Monday to Friday from 9am. This is Views and News with Clarence Ford. Only on Cape Talk. It's time now for our walking, talking, living, breathing encyclopedia, the naked, naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. Of course, joining us from the UK via Zoom this morning, Roger has dialed in Durbanville. Uh, Roger, good morning and welcome to you, Dr. Smith. It's good to have you back. Good morning. Good morning. Roger, you can go ahead. Hi, Dr. Chris. My question is, long ago in my wild youth, I wrote off a couple of cars and in the one I bent the steering wheel and in another, I bent the steering column. And I've subsequently heard it referred to as the death grip. Now, where does that sudden enormous strength come from? Is it just adrenaline or is it something else that kicks in? And I wish I could access it at other times. Oh, you, me, oh, both, Roger. You. There have been many occasions when it would be very handy to have the kind of superhuman strength we appear to be able to master and muster at certain times of emergency. I think you're probably right that under certain circumstances of extremes, when we're very stressed or when we're very frightened, you do get a massive release of adrenaline. And sometimes this does enable you to produce enormous amounts of response and do things that you you think you're incapable of. But don't forget, there are also other aspects of physics conspiring to help you here. Because if you just took a static piece of metal and applied a force to it, you're not going to be able to bend it. But if you've got the metal already moving, and that's because it's being crushed or collapsed or rippled by a car collision, there's already movement and there's already momentum in that piece of material. And you applying an additional restraining force on it with your arms means you don't have to supply all of the force that bends the metal. You've got to supply some of the force that keeps it in one position. So it may well be that there's more to it in terms of what happened than just you being the sole operator here. It sounds, given that you don't normally bend steering wheels and there was a collision going on at the time, it, it sounds that there's, there's more to it in that respect. But I think it's a combination of factors, and one of them is, you're quite right, you've put your finger on it, when we are very stressed, we do produce various hormones, including adrenaline and other processes in the nervous system that can enable us to, for a short time, produce greater amounts of force. The effect of psychology in sporting events is only too well known. And so I think it really is a case of mind over matter in many instances. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Chris. And thank you, Roger, out in Durbanville. There's a voice note in. Let's take a listen to that one. Good morning. My question for the naked scientist. Chris, why are scientists so against the idea of there being a mind behind the order in the universe? Surely, surely there would be chaos and surely there couldn't be order if there wasn't laws that were put in place by a mind, by an intelligent being behind all that is in order in the universe. Thank you, Mike. I hope you got that one, Dr. Chris Smith. Hello, Mike. Well, I think what scientists are is a, rash, a rational bunch of people who believe in evidence 
and they form a hypothesis and then they design experiments to test their hypothesis. Am I right or not? Now, that doesn't rule out the existence of a higher being. And in fact, if you want to point to a moment of creation, when the Big Bang created the universe, there's a moment of creation for you. And we have no idea what came before the Big Bang, why it happened or why it happened here. We have no idea if we're the only universe in existence. In fact, there might be multiple, many different parallel universes, and perhaps the rules in those universes are quite different than the rules that we're living by in this universe. So I don't think scientists say that science and religion, to put it that way, are mutually exclusive. It's merely that one is led by the generation of evidence, facts and observation, and informed by observation. The other is informed and led by belief. And one is not necessarily exclusive against the other, but at the same time, one doesn't mean you have to have the other if you have a gap in your knowledge. It means you don't have anything to put into that gap at the moment, and you don't yet understand. For instance, when we look at the universe, we see an entity which is getting bigger, and the older it gets, the faster it gets bigger. It's like a teenager that goes into a growth spurt that never stops. So why is the... And I say teenager because the universe is 13.8 billion years old. But why is the universe growing? Well, we have invoked this entity that we've just invented called dark energy, which the more space we get, the more dark energy we get, and that, and that is pushing things apart faster. But what that is, well, we don't know, and that's why we've called it dark. Now, we could say, well, that must be God then. But on the other hand, well, we, we don't know, do we? And until we look, we're, we're not going to be able to find and constrain theories. I guess when people looked at the first X-ray, when Röntgen first realised he could see through solid material and take pictures of what was inside his body, he must have thought there was some very mysterious kind of entity which is enabling him to do that. That's why they called it X-rays. Subsequently, we worked out that this is a form of electromagnetic radiation, and that's very similar to the light we can see, only X-rays are in a wavelength of light that we can't see. So I think it's really all coming down to at the level and depth of our understanding. And if people are religious, that is not exclusive against science, and vice versa. Question in via WhatsApp. Um, hi, Dr. Smith. Can you please explain what happens when an electrical grid collapses? And why does it take so long to get it back up? I think Amina asking that question, of course, we are uh, suffering high stages of, of load shedding at this moment in time. And we are a little worried about that possibility. Um, Dr. Smith? Well, the UK is also teetering on the verge, as is other parts of Europe, of not having enough electricity. And there is a massive cable that supplies the UK from the continent of Europe. And sometimes the UK supplies the continent of Europe via this subsea interconnect. And this is in order to balance out supply and demand. But we've had a huge cold snap. I mean, the temperature has been minus 10 degrees in some, some parts of southern England in recent days. So unsurprisingly, levels of consumption have gone up. And our own electrical supplies are really teetering on the brink of not being able to cope. So... Why are we being told, well, we may get these brownouts or we may get rolling sort of load shedding across different parts of towns and cities? The way in which electricity is distributed around countries in a sustainable way is via a national grid. And the way that works is that you, rather than just have a power station supplying a town and then another power station in another part of the, the country supplying another town, this is very unreliable if you do this because if anything goes on with that power station or one part of that supply network all of those people are deprived. So much better is to have an interconnected system where you have a, a series of 
generators, those are the power stations, that push energy onto that interconnected system. And they do it in phase because the electricity is alternating current AC and it's 50 hertz AC, so it'll be going plus minus plus minus plus minus doing that 50 times a second so you make your generators all do that in phase with each other and link up and then share the load around the country but share the supply around the country now the problem is if one particular area starts to consume a lot of energy and there's not enough energy coming into the system then you put load on the grid and as the grid gets loaded then it drops the frequency of the supply because you're making the power stations that are still supplying work harder, but you're also making some parts of the grid network supply a lot more energy through their system to supply the areas that are demanding the energy than they can really cope with because normally it's all balanced out. It's like a spider web where you've got lots of strands and each of them individually is carrying a bit of the load, but no one strand could carry all the load. If you start chopping bits off your spider web, you end up with enormous amounts of energy going through just small parts of the web, uh, the nodes, and that would blow them up. So when you turn things on or turn things off, you have to make sure you bring them back online in a staged way, in phase with the operating grid, and that the load is is not going to totally surge and overwhelm that part of the grid so they've got various measures to make sure they can do that so that you don't then compound the damage and overload the things you bring back online because everyone's trying to pull all their energy through that one bit of the grid when you turn it back on then we have a question i think it's a cute question from ava ava's 13 years old out in Hout bay uh, um, a question for the naked scientist if you are an identical twin and you die of old age would you would you die on the same day Hello, Ava. Thankfully not, because although you're identical, that means you're identical genetically when you're conceived as a sperm meeting an egg that then splits in two, and that's how you get two embryos that are genetically identical, because it was one sperm and one egg, one set of genetic material, one embryo that then, for some reason, that scientists still can't really understand, it breaks into two very early in the developmental process. So you've got two developing embryos which have got the same genetic information in them because the way we put ourselves together the way we develop the structure of our body is driven by the recipes in our genes in our dna you end up with two babies that look very very similar they're not identical although we call them identical twins they don't look absolutely identical because as you go through the aging process the developing process and growing up process there are random processes built into that that do add change or differences to each individual. And then there's, of course, not just the fact that, that you've grown up with some randomness. There's also the fact that you live a different life. If you've got these two twins and one of them's very healthy and eats a really good diet, drinks a sensible amount of alcohol and doesn't smoke, they will have a much healthier outcome than the same person, the same identical twin, the same genetics who smokes a lot, drinks too much and eats an unhealthy diet. They're not going to have the same risk of dying at any one time because of their lifestyle. So there's a range of factors to take into account and lifestyle is the most important one. So just because they look the same and they're genetically very similar, you can't say identical because things have started to change throughout their life. Their lifestyles will almost certainly be a bit different and that means their risk of any kind of health problem is going to be a little bit different and that means the likelihood of them dying on the same day 
unless they have some kind of catastrophic accident that they're both involved in or some other horrible life event, then they're not going to have, a, or they're going to have a really low likelihood that they're going to pass away on the same day. Uh, so we had a uh, conversation uh, earlier this week, a uh, conversation about um, about exorcism. There was a bit of a, a meeting, a gathering of exorcists, and they discussed the need for more exorcists in the it's country. It's called a seance, isn't it? Uh, well, I, well, I think it was a meeting of religious kind of uh, people who, who does exorcism, and apparently there's a need for that. But flowing out of that conversation, somebody phoned in and said a university had offered a reward for proof of the supernatural um, and that no such proof was forthcoming. So the question reads verbatim. Uh, so on your show the other morning with regards to ghosts, uh, a listener phoned in about the reward offered by some university for proof of the supernatural. Could you ask Dr. Chris about this? Uh, Steve asking that question. Um, I think the question is, is there proof of supernatural uh, just generally or spirit world? Hi, Steve. Well, the answer is that uh, while these things make great make make great campfire stories and they're really interesting things to to tell on halloween because they scare the hell out of the kids and everyone loves to be frightened a little bit as long as it's in a safe way that's why we're intrigued by this it's the unknown it's something we we can't explain and there are plenty of stories that go around but they're just that they're stories and every time people have tried to subject the supernatural to some kind of rigorous scientific documented objective appraisal they never get anywhere we haven't got any clear evidence that this kind of phenomenon exists. Now, that's not to say it's not very real to the observer and it's not very real to people who are having these things happen, but there are other reasons why they may be happening rather than just the supernatural. The closest that we've come to explaining why people get funny feelings, sort of sensations of pins and needles and prickles down their necks and a cold sweat... There was quite an interesting study about 20 years ago where researchers identified that there are certain parts of the sound spectrum which we can't hear but which are very apparent to our consciousness. This is really what we call infrasound, sound waves which are really low in frequency which trigger our internal vibration sensors but we can't hear them. And in certain places, because of shapes of buildings or because of nearby industry or traffic or the wind making a building vibrate in a particular way, you can get concentrations of these low-frequency sounds. And this, when you ask people when they're exposed to them, makes people report a sensation that the place is haunted. And I, I know a psychologist who did some experiments where they asked people about their, their sense of whether a place was haunted, and then they recorded the levels of infrasound, and they found a really strong correspondence. And then they did further studies where they played these sounds to people without them realising that the sounds were being added at certain points, but not at other points. And people, more often than not, re regarded a particular situation or time point as being associated with a ghostly or a presence sensation when these sounds were turned on. So there is some objective evidence for the fact that there are hauntings in the sense that we can make people feel like they're having a funny experience with certain sound experiences. So that's part and parcel of it. There are also obviously uh, situations where people have mental illness or people are exposed to certain drugs or substances which can also distort their reality temporarily. And this can also lead to people reporting things which was because their consciousness had been distorted or altered by a particular illness or a drug, for example, that kind of thing. So there, there are reasons why people experience these kind of phenomena, but we haven't yet found anything that we can't explain in terms of there's a ghost over there, 
what could that possibly be? We we don't rule these things out because we haven't got any evidence that they're not true, but what we haven't got is any evidence that they are true. Uh, talk, uh, talking to Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist, your questions, of course. Dr. Chris, can you tell us how planned obsolescence works? I have two fridges. One is more than 30 years old, which I got from my aunt, and it's still going strong. I have a four-year-old one that's on its last legs. <laughs> Jenny in Weinberg with that question. Hello, Jenny. Yes, engineered obsolescence is what cynics say about the mass manufacturing just-in-time mentality that we have these days, where it's very, very cheap to make stuff, and so you make things at huge volume, flog them across the world, and your aim is that they're not of very high quality. They just do the job, look okay for a while, then they clap out, and because they were so cheap, you just go and buy another one. And this keeps the manufacturers in business, and it keeps the money flowing through the system. The idea is not to put your business out of business by making something that works for a nice long time. In the old days, when things were really expensive, they were much harder to make, they were expensive to ship, and there was something to be said for having a really good reputation and having the brand that was the go-to brand. Everyone wanted one of those because they lasted forever and were dead reliable. Those days have been replaced by just race to the bottom cheapness. And because many manufacturers can now just look at the plans for a particular thing and, and copy it, then it's really easy to just produce clones of things that are not actually very good. They're made with substandard materials. They've not had the same research development, road testing and proper really sort of bug solving going into them. And so they do go wrong. And we, we've unfortunately embraced this market because it's been driven by price and we wanted to pay less for things and have them quickly rather than pay more for something that is the quality. And unfortunately, that is the way of the world. And so people have, have dubbed this now engineered obsolescence, where manufacturers actually don't want to produce something that is going to go the distance. They want something that you'll have to replace in a few years' time, whether that's because it claps out or just because it's got various things in it that mean it's out of date. And there's an element of that too, that because of the pace of change in some sectors of technology is so high that you end up with a device that is now out of date in just a matter of years. Whereas historically, when things were not made that way, when we weren't in this technological revolution that we're in now, it was much harder for things to go out of date quickly. So it was worth having something that was well-built and went the distance because you would carry on using it. And, I, and I, I'm a part of this club. I mean, I've got refri refrigerators here, which are decades old, um, vacuum cleaner, which I've, I've lost count of how old that is. And my grandma was using a vacuum cleaner that her own mum had used. Um, you know, it's crazy. And they're still going all these things, all these devices. Whereas uh, stuff I've bought in more recent years dies in about 10 seconds these days. So I'm a, I'm a strong believer in the whole theory of engineered obsolescence. And Jim in Sunningdale is on the line. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up soon. Jim, go ahead with your question. Okay. Good morning, Jim. Morning, Professor Smith. What I would like to ask, look, tell me, you have a good idea, how old are the electric power stations in the UK? I worked in one in Kent in the early 60s. Dungeness was 58. But the coal power stations, a lot of them are still in operation. I'd like to know approximately how old they are because we're getting excuses here that our power stations in the 80s are too old for production. 
a lot of them are quite old, but of course it's a bit like the broom, which has had 15 new heads and X number of new handles over its lifetime. You just replace bits on them. But yes, many of them are, are pretty old and they're trying to retire them very, very quickly because the argument goes, this is not good for our carbon footprint, this is not good for pollution and uh, we want to switch to more sustainable ways of heating and, uh, sorry, of, of supplying people with electricity. The, the problem is that when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine and you've got gas prices through the, through the roof, if you've got lots of coal at home, you'd want to burn that because it would be the cheapest way to do it. But unfortunately, governments of many persuasions did not think ahead about this kind of thing, so there was not a good plan for how to deal with the current energy crisis in a, in a sustainable way. So it's not so much to do with the age of the plant, it's, it's more to do with um, motivation to try to come up with alternatives and have a plan in place to replace them. That th- These older stations aren't as efficient as newer ones, but they're not that bad. Last question, and if you can answer, uh, answer uh, briefly, why do we hold our heads in exasperation, for example, when I, our team missed a goal? And that question from <laughs> Hassan Autry. <laughs> the, uh, well, that happened to us, didn't it? Did, did, did anyone watch the... Uh, England matches the other day. Oh dear, what a shame. We, we were all holding our heads in our hands when we played France. But the reason for, for this is that humans are visual creatures. We do things that have a big visual impact on our fellows, such as crying, screaming, shouting, going red in the face, and in this case, pulling your hair out and holding your head. It's a visual signal to demonstrate to those around you that you are ex- experiencing a certain emotion. And when other people around you experience the same emotion, there's a bonding opportunity there. And if there's a bonding opportunity, there's an opportunity for the group to regroup, think and work together to solve the problem. So it's, it's a way, it's a visual display of communication. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.